0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Joseph Gaines, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Michael Ratnapallan about his book... Robert Louis Stevenson and the Pacific, the transformation of global Christianity. Dr. Rhett uh, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. We appreciate you being here.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: No problem. I wonder, uh, Michael, if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Yes. Um, so I'm an associate professor of history at Underwood International College in Yonsei University. Uh, that's a university in South Korea. Uh, so so I'm, I'm based in Seoul, but I also teach at, uh, at another campus they have in near to the city of Incheon. Um, I'm originally from the United Kingdom, so I arrived uh, to teach at Yonsei in 2012. Uh, in the UK, I was trained in history and particularly in cultural history. Um, and uh, since I've been teaching at Yonsei, I've focused mostly on the history of Britain and its empire. Uh, that was also some of my training uh, as, a, you know, as a student. Um, in recent years, I've uh, moved to work uh, more and more on the history of religion uh, as it relates to British history. So 19th century Uh, British churches and missions and so on. So that's a little bit getting on to a little bit how I came to be interested in in the topic of this book. But I also uh, have had a long interest in in Stevenson and the Pacific. I wrote my doctoral thesis uh, on Stevenson's Pacific nonfiction, uh, particularly his travel writing. Um, And I approached that uh, from the point of view of the study of uh, culture, the Victorian study of culture. So I'm kind of returning a little bit to that theme, uh, but through maybe some of the different materials than before. That's a little bit about me.
1: Okay, wonderful. Yes, yeah, so uh, maybe we can and talk a little bit more about how you came to write this book specifically. So, so why uh, why Stevenson? You know, you, you said you did your your dissertation on him, so you spent some time with him. Um, but uh, I think maybe there's a lot there, and and. Uh, a lot still to look into. So, why Stevenson? Why the Pacific? And uh, you know, why? How does global Christianity come into this? How how do we get interested in um, this? All those things together.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I when I was working on Stevenson uh, as a doctoral student in London in the early 2000s, I approached his uh, nonfiction, so his travel writing, which he did when he was. As a, you know, as a visitor in the Pacific between about 1880 and 1888 and 1890, sorry, um, I approached it from the point of view of a Victorian studies of culture. So I particularly looked at uh, people like Edward Burnett Tyler, the first Victorian anthropologist, and uh, and some comparisons and contrasts between his work and Stevenson's. Um, then what happened was that I, when I moved to Seoul in 2012, I, I was working more in other areas. I worked on 20th century history and some other themes, uh, but also living in Seoul. Um, just my experience of living in Seoul, I think, had a, a an influence on on my return to look at global Christianity, in the sense that I saw a much more public and vibrant Christian religious life in. Seoul in South Korea than I did in the United Kingdom, certainly in London, anywhere where I was based, uh, I mean, particularly in a vibrant Christian religious life. Um, so they were, I mean, the, one of the first things, that, uh, you know, somebody who's new to Seoul will see, you know, uh, walking around cities, there are much more churches and the, the night sky, as I wrote elsewhere, is kind of flashed up with red crosses everywhere. that you can see all over the place. Very interesting that you will see more pastors and more priests and nuns just in public. You just see more of them, you know, walking around, you know, then I, then I did, you know, like on the train or on the bus, in London, uh, on, on Sundays I would often see, you know, my wife and I'd be walking around and we see kind of people dressed very smartly carrying Bibles in their hand. That's something I almost never saw in London I, and except it was if it was in the vicinity of a church, So just in public people were walking on their way, uh, survival, or else we would see couples praying the rosary together as they walk in the park. You know, This is like an ordinary everyday phenomenon in Seoul. Something I I, I just, um, you know, it it was just not on my radar in London when I looked. Um, So I began to think over the years I was in Seoul, over the years I've been in Seoul, last sort of 10 years or so, about the impact of Christianity on places outside the West. Uh, What kind of impact Christianity has had in a place like Career also made me think again about some of the things I read all those years ago about Stevenson and the Pacific. Um, so, this led me back to that larger topic of Stevenson and the Pacific. And I, and, you know, going back to read some of his nonfiction that I was kind of reasonably familiar with from my doctoral work, I noticed again that Stevenson's always writing about conversion, always writing about religious belief, always writing about the material presence of Christianity in the island Pacific. Uh, you know, the, of course, as many people have observed, he writes about missionaries, but also about Bibles, uh, about churches, um, uh, you know, about various aspects of of Christian belief and the interaction of Christianity and Pacific culture. And I just thought, um, you know, there hasn't been a lot written about that. There hasn't been a lot of attention uh, in in the scholarship on Stevenson about that. And so, uh, in a way, I kind of was drawn to that, uh, back to that, Topic and, and drawn to look at it anew, if you like, with fresh eyes uh, through my experience of um, this kind of interaction of Christianity and Korean culture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that that's a, a wonderful introduction to how, how you got interested in uh, this specific topic. And if this um, if this if this preempts maybe some of the chapters of the of the book, then we can maybe save some of it for for later. But it seemed to me from from your book that not necessarily that Stevenson's uh, interaction with religion is downplayed so much, but that it's it's misunderstood. Is that a, a good way to to kind of see the a lot of the scholarship with Stevenson and religion?
2: Yeah, I think that's a that, that's a yeah a fair way to see it. Um, there is. Uh... There is work on, there has even, you know, there has been work done on Stevenson and religion fairly consistently, uh, but the approach tends to be from the perspective of, uh, I would say, what what some historians have written as a master narrative, secularization. So, you know, he, Stevenson typically, you know, is your typical kind of mid-19th century uh, middle-class Briton who at a certain point in his late teenage years, early 20s, discovers kind of, you know, uh you know, scientific materialism and naturalism and um, you know uh kind of rationalist philosophy if you like and then he's slowly driven to question and maybe then finally re- reject the religion of his parents uh, which was scottish presbyterianism in stevenson's case and that's a kind of a narrative you find played over and over uh in biographies but especially more recently biographical accounts of stevenson or shortened kind of forms that you find in scholarly accounts of stevenson and, um, and for a variety of reasons, I was uh, not satisfied with that, but primarily because, being more familiar as I was with the Stevenson the Pacific, I could see that he was extremely engaged with Pacific Christianity, um, and not just as an observer, but as a you know as a participant, if you like. You know, he he attended church fairly often in Samoa, for example. And, you know, as I say later in the book, um, he he conducted his own uh, kind of, you know, uh, prayer services in his pr- prayer so- daily prayer service in his Samoan home. Um, and he, uh, you know, he spent time, hung out with missionaries, uh, you know, in the Pacific, you know. So he's very, he very curious about Pacific Christianity. And, you know, I want to say that the Pacific kind of opens his eyes again to Christianity or makes him interested in something that was maybe always latent rather than gone away. So in that sense, I think it's fair to say that, yeah, maybe... Christianity's or religion is kind of misunderstood the, the, the arc of Stevenson's life maybe is misunderstood um, in terms of religion
1: yeah that's that's not the um, the typical trajectory if one thinks about um, you know in in the the life of this man specifically I guess uh, that's not the trajectory you would expect for secularization if that were the you know the overall arc of his uh, experience so that that does um, give us kind of a more complex picture that's very interesting. So in talking about that, uh, you discuss Stevenson's religious literacy uh, in your book. And how does that literacy appear in his writings? Um, and, and maybe you could give us a sense of what it, what it means for Stevenson to be religiously literate.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the, maybe I'll, I'll kind of take one step back and just say how it fits into the overall argument. I I thought of this. I conceived of the uh, book really in terms of a kind of three steps. Uh, a colleague of mine, very helpfully, outlined his three movements in a musical movements. He said very kindly, but basically the first step is to establish that Stevenson, that, as you just said, it, it was a religiously literate figure. Um, he, he had he had something that I described as. I describe his religious literacy and I go on to kind of describe what that is in a moment. And then I would say in the second step, which is the middle chapters of my book, that the religious, Stevenson's religious literacy enables him to connect, engage with, observe, identify, um, uh, be more close to, and understand the forms of Christianity that he was seeing emerging in the Pacific when he visited there. It gives him the eyes, reflexes, if you like, intellectually, to grasp that. Uh, intellectually, maybe also emotionally. Uh, so i say go back and say that about religious literacy. And then in the third movement, if you like, or the third step of the book, in the final chapter, particularly the fifth chapter, I then kind of bring it back for, back to the beginning in a certain sense. And I look at the way in which Stevenson's religious literacy and his engagement Uh, In what they call Pacific enculturation, you know, the kind of, if you like, the confluence of Christianity and culture and the questions around that in the Pacific, how that shapes a particular aspect of his religious thought, which is his ecclesiology, the way he thinks about church. So, kind of, if you like, the fifth chapter is almost like an experiment in looking, in in kind of applying what I've kind of uh, tried to um, draw out in the previous chapters. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you know, he, Stevenson was, um, you know, he was. I think it's well known that Stevenson is, is religious illiterate in the sense that he grew up in a Scottish Presbyterian household. He's a well known Scottish writer who addresses religious themes in his work. So, in that sense, I think the fact that he had a Scottish Presbyterianism, Scottish Presbyterian or Calvinist kind of background. Makes it relatively easy to understand in what sense his mind was shaped by religion. Where I want to push a bit further than some of the scholarship on Stevenson that does address it from that point of view is to say that religion I address not simply or not solely as a in terms of theology and doctrine and kind of things inside the church, if you like, but also a wider cultural phenomenon. Uh, that is to say, uh, religious literacy for Stevenson, also involves an understanding, a grasp of what happens in the Church of Scotland in the middle of the 19th century. And I, I discuss, for example, the disruption, the breakup or the division in the Church of Scotland in 1843 uh, over the issue of patronage and, and the separation of the free church, so-called, from the Church of Scotland. And I, I, I try to position Stevenson as, a, as a, a young intellectual engaging with these matters that were not of purely religious import they were of course of religious import but they also had a wider historical and social and cultural kind of resonance and i think stevenson's religious literacy for me is a way to um if you like to encompass those matters uh, uh and not just uh, the formal kind of a, um, a doctrinal uh and practical aspects of religious belief so Uh, In his work, such as uh, you know, in his Scottish work, in his specific uh, um, such as Strange um, Kidnapped or uh, or even Treasure Island, you know, you find examples of Stevenson's biblical literacy, if you like, you know, all throughout. Um, It's not very difficult to find that. Uh, And also, you find in some of his stories a kind of understanding of the religious history of Europe, uh, which is also something that was you know kind of at his fingertips in a sense. but overall, um, but, but you also find that in Stevenson's writing, and not just in his fiction, but his nonfiction and his letters, a kind of an ease of familiarity with religious modes of thought and religious expressions. Uh, so what I, one of the things I say in the first chapter um, is that uh, Stevenson uh, misses, after he kind of, if you like, rebels or, or separates himself off from the religion of his Parents, the Scottish Presbyterianism of his parents in the 1870s, he has a decade or so, I think, you know, that too precise, where he spends time in a new social environment. Uh, it's the environment of the London literati primarily, um, and in that period, uh, you can see through examples in his letters and, you know, other extant writing, he misses the religious talk that he had become used to in his family and the Scottish Presbyterian kind of social background in Edinburgh that he had grown up in. He misses that talk. Um, I'm, I'm careful in this book not to directly uh, align that with any statement about Stevenson's religious beliefs. I think one can be, I, I make the claim that Stevenson can be religiously literate without necessarily being a believing Christian or, or, or questioning too far where, what that means in the relationship. What I want to address is that he seems to uh, and he addresses this to some of his new friends, and he says, "You know, I, I don't get. To, I I know that I'm not allowed to talk about God with you or the Bible with you, you know, because you're all you thought you you know you you, you know, your language is different." Yeah. So Stephen's religious literature literally is a kind of a a, a mode of expression, I think, in him. Um, yeah. So so it's kind of a a deep kind of lived knowledge, lived knowledge of Scottish Presbyterianism, uh, as well as. I think the other aspect of religious literacy that I want to bring out is he's a sympathetic awareness of related Christian denominations. So as a Scottish Presbyterianism is the way in which he, un- as a Scottish as Presbyterian, as Presbyterianism is the way he understands also Roman Catholicism, which, you know, I mean, the, the, the history of um, Britain, of course, and, and certainly Scotland, you know, these kind of various kind of fault lines or dividing lines between Episcopalian and dissenting traditions, you know, with Church of England and, and the Presbyterian Church, Protestantism, the more broadly conceived Roman Catholicism. So Stevenson's understanding of of um, of other Christian denominations or of the Roman Catholic Church, I argue, is uh, a product or 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 connected in an intimate way to his understanding of himself as a Scottish Presbyterian. Um, and that becomes important when I go on to make some points about you know Stevenson's anthropology of the Pacific and so on. Um, and then the other thing I do in the first chapter is I, I just kind of try to uh, lay out uh, a kind of briefly an intellectual history. What things was Stevenson reading when he was growing up, from whom and what did he gain his ideas, uh, what impact did religious change in Britain have on his life. And one of the things that's interesting is that Stevenson, unlike, um, I would say, what we might imagine when we look at the study of the Scottish Enlightenment, Stevenson doesn't really talk much about the likes of Adam Smith, David Hume. He's... he's his Scottish cultural knowledge is besides, of course, people like Walter Scott or Burns, literary figures, it tends to be religious figures, you know, people like John Knox and so on. So his, his sense of Scottishness is tied to his sense of the Scottish religious past and present. Um, and so I find that's also kind of bound up with his religious literacy, an understanding of his identity and, uh, and of Scotland's history. So yeah, so that's 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 a kind of a if you like a consideration of his intellectual life up to 1888 uh, that I do in the first chapter by framing it in terms of religious literacy. And then the other thing to point out is that I engage in that opening chapter uh, with some of the work of the of the philosopher Charles Taylor, um, who you know famously has uh, theorized uh, in in his book The Secular Age about the contrast between the, the so-called buffered self of of modernity, this kind of theory of the self in, in modern times that's kind of closed to spirits and the supernatural world, if you like, and tries to kind of hold it in uh, and, 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 and tries to present a picture of a world that's kind of, if you like, shaped or framed purely by the senses and materially, you know, um, uh, and sensorially kind of uh, graspable things versus the porous world, world that's open to spirits, world that's open to the uh, ineffable, the unknowable, the, the supernatural, Um, And I try to frame Stevenson's experience, uh, uh, and my readers will have to tell me how successful I am at that, uh, through this kind of uh, dichotomy between the poorest and the Buffett self. I argue that maybe in Stevenson's fiction, especially, uh, you know, Stevenson's very famous for supernatural horrors and, and, you know, fiction's uh, ghost stories, um, you see the Buffett self... uh, uh, creeping out at various times, you know, Jekyll and Hyde could sometimes be, in, in a way, be interpreted as the kind of a uh, the, in that in terms of that dichotomy, um, uh, the, the poorest and the buff itself. But, but Stevenson's experience in his life in in the West, and particularly in his early uh, early twenties to early thirties, is to go from an understanding of uh, uh, of his life in terms of the poorest self to the buff itself, uh, something where he's kind of slowly closing himself intellectually and socially to the possibility of, uh, of, of the supernatural or of, of spirits of, of a world that can't be controlled bodily and psychologically. Um, and again, that's kind of in a sense to set up also what I think he experiences in the Pacific.
1: Absolutely. No, that, um, it, it definitely comes through that there's a, uh, I, I guess you, you, you could expect that if somebody expects Stevenson to be, more secular to be on that trajectory of, uh, you know, I guess becoming entirely buffered. Uh, I, you might see how the reader would not expect and maybe misunderstand some of the, uh, the openness to aspects of religion, whether that's Christianity or the, um, you know his his Western Scottish Christianity, or or what he finds in in the Pacific as well. Uh, so th- that was uh, your discussion of that was very helpful in, in kind of reframing uh, that aspect of Stevenson, and that and that's fascinating. So moving into the Pacific, uh, what did Stevenson's ethnography in the Pacific involve? What what did that um, kind of look like for him?
2: Right. Uh, yeah. So he, yeah. So in the second chapter, I address this. You know, Stevenson's what I what I call Pacific anthropology. Um, I mean, really, the middle chapters of the book are really looking at the. You know, chapters two, three, and four are really looking at the impact of the Pacific Islands religion on the mind of Stevenson. That's what I'm interested in. Really, the mind of Stevenson and how religion shapes it. Um, and so this is where I really kind of bring in uh, some of the recent scholarship on world Christianity and on the Anthropology of Christianity as well um, and, um, and so I try to embed my, uh, my research on Stevenson's nonfiction as well as his fiction uh, within the paradigm of global or sorry of Pacific Christianity as this kind of like a regional context of this broader shift of Christianity's center demographically away from the global north or the West. Um, and I try to say that that shift that contextual shift, is very important to, to understanding what's going on with Stevenson's writing in the Pacific. You know, Essentially, I'm offering that as a new context for Stevenson's studies, if I look at it, we just put it from a very specific scholarly framework. Um, because what Stevenson then, I think, discovers when he goes to the Pacific, and, it's a, and I, I say this at several points in the book, it's a kind of an ambivalent discovery, uh, is that Christianity seems to be becoming more prominent in places such as Samoa than in Scotland, and it's not the Christianity that he had known or understood in Scotland, even though it's still called in some ways Presbyterianism, for example, in Samoa, you know, the largest church is Presbyterianism. But there are striking differences as well as awkward similarities, if you like, between, you know, the Presbyterianism in Edinburgh and in Up here, you know? Uh, so so it's um, it's by no means kind of, I don't know, what some people sometimes say it's some some sort of triumphalist account of the expansion of Christianity. It's something more I think Stevenson's encounter was much more thoughtful than that. Uh, and, uh, and in some senses, you know, he's thoughtful. In some senses, I think he was probably disturbed as well uh, by what he, what he experienced, you know, in terms of how Christianity had developed in these ways um, that he hadn't expected. Um, so, yeah, so I, I explore this kind of ambivalence in Chapter 2 in, in Stevenson's Ethnographic Writing, um, I, uh, which he largely wrote in the Pacific between 1888 and 1890. So these were the years of travel, uh, and then he settles roughly 1890, 1891. He settles in Samoa. And so the rest of his life he's somewhere from 1890-ish to 1894 at his death. Um, and I mean, I, I discussed the origins of the anthropology of uh, Christianity, which is kind of a, a movement among uh, some anthropologists uh, in the last sort of 15-20 years. Um, and I think that one of the things I try to say is that we can, be, you know, work on Stevenson as an ethnologist, or well, what we, I call an anthropologist, Uh, There's been very interesting studies in the last sort of 20 years. Uh, What I try to add to that, really, is to say that if we pay attention to Stevenson's particularly Protestant analytical and rhetorical position, so again, jumping from the religious literacy point, you know, that he's observing things in the Pacific, he's observing cultural phenomena as somebody from a Scottish Presbyterian background. So he's observing, for example, the emergence of what we would call today world or global Christianity or, or Pacific Christianity as a subset, if you like, uh, from the point of view of a man who was raised in a Scottish Presbyterian background. And I think some interesting things start to emerge in terms of this specific ethnography that maybe hasn't been observed before. Um, so I, I describe a kind of a denominational consciousness in Stevenson. Uh, and you know the typical move I think that people sometimes make is to say, well, that weakens his objectivity, doesn't it? Because that means he has it comes with a certain bias or baggage. But I actually find that the reverse is true. It gives him a kind of what I call a reflexivity. It makes him aware of himself as an observer. Because his aim as a writer, and you know people people often praise Stevens for this, is to try to balance different perspectives uh, rather than to present himself as some sort of neutral tabula rasa. He says, I am a you know, he sometimes uses his the expression "sect," I, my sect. You know, so you know again, regardless of the questions of whether he's a believer or not, he understands himself at least let's say culturally or literacy as a Presbyterian. So then, everything he observes, I think, if to understand better, it's good to go back to what a uh, what kind of ways Presby- a Scottish Presbyterianism or a Presbyterian, a person educated in that tradition, would understand things like church or um, marriage, or, um, you know, uh, various other cultural phenomena in the Pacific. Um, the other thing I do in the second chapter uh, is I try to relate Stevenson's ethnography to a concept in that the anthropologists have developed called transcendence, uh, which basically I think is to reflect on the, the now, the this world, and the other worldness of Christianity. You know, it's kind of it's there, isn't it, in, you know, the often made statement about Christians, you know, say that we live in this world, but we look to the world beyond. Right. And, you know, anthropologists of Christianity have often used that, that idea to analyze various cultural phenomena in especially kind of new Christian or recently Christian societies. Um, the anthropologist Joel Robbins, who I refer to in my book, um, did, a, did a study of a particular kind of new Christian community in Papua New Guinea. And use the concept of transcendence, and I find that Stevenson's writing about belief and conversion engages this relationship between, you know, this and otherworldly conceptions of, of Christianity. Um, what I think he also does, though, is that he Stevenson that is he critiques what I think are uh, very too rationalist and too individualist accounts of of of, of, of human societies and human existence. Um, he tries to draw a connection between the supernatural and the social. Um, and I think this is, a, this is a, again, part of his reflection on Pacific societies. Um, so he says that Pacific societies are collectively believing societies, not just individually. Uh, so he just kind of, that belief is a kind of a, a corporate phenomenon and open in some way to the presence of the supernatural in a way that maybe Western Christianity was becoming decreasingly so. Uh, maybe becoming more rationalistic in the, in the aftermath of the Enlightenment and so on. Uh, so I do that, and then I also reflect on a, a particular fable that Stevenson wrote. Something in it, which um, which I try to read in the context of this Pacific ethnography. I say what Stevenson says about uh, you know the anthropology of the Pacific. I think is reflected, as often is the case with Stevenson, best in his fiction. Uh, so I try to contextualize that uh, very very short kind of fable within what I have to say about. Uh, denominational consciousness and transcendence, and so
1: on. Yes, no, that was a. Um, I, was, I was able to read something in it, and uh, no, your your discussion of that was was very helpful in in framing uh, kind of Stevenson's uh, approach to that. Um, so, uh, the the anthropology of of Christianity. Um, and, and when we're just, just for the listeners, when we're talking about that, um, are are we talking about the difference between, uh, current or, or, or up into the 21st century trends of anthropology or, um, do we mean Stevenson's interaction with contemporary kind of anthropological work in the Pacific,
2: uh, the, the the latter has been uh, done uh, and very well, I think, by Stevenson scholars. Uh, the, but I'm mainly referring to the former here, the the contemporary re- if you like, the contemporary anthropologists' rediscovery of um, of two things, I think. One, the intellectual history of anthropology, which uh, you know um, some contemporary anthropologists have interestingly, very fascinatingly discovered uh, in a kind of a bifurcation of Christian theology. Kind of a, kind of the roots in Christian theology, uh, and so that's one development. And the other is a kind of uh, the maybe not the discovery that's way too strong, maybe, but but the the grow the the the, the emphasis on the uh, the character, the enduring character of Christianity in uh, historically maybe let's say historically non-Christian societies. You know, so these kind of new Christian societies, if you like, you know, the, the societies that maybe we would study in another context in, in studies of global Christianity or world Christianity. So we see some anthropologists making that move towards um, taking the Christianity of those societies seriously, if you like, rather than, as Robin's described, rather than seeing them as some sort of thin veneer under which you have to penetrate to get to what they're really like. right? So that, that, I'm just trying to engage that. Yeah
0: Meals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah, no, that, that was definitely an, uh, an interesting concept that, uh, you know, that, that uh, in some instances, these societies are being, it's almost like it's not accepted that they have accepted the Christianity as part of who they are. And obviously, it, were, it depends on each individual society that we're, that we're talking about, but you no, know, that that is a kind of an interesting difference between uh, two ways of looking at this. So uh, earlier in his life, Stevenson, uh, as you've said, he he kind of consciously distanced himself from his uh, the the religion that he grew up with, at, at least in the uh, maybe in the intellectual side of it. Even though he he continues to attend church and and obviously think about religion so it's it's not totally done but he uh he distances himself from that earlier in his life um and in samoa specifically uh you talked about how he rediscovered religious community could you tell us um kind of about that religious community in samoa
2: yeah, absolutely. So Stevenson, I mean, what what's really fascinating is, you know, talking to Samoans uh, while I was writing this book and just getting a sense of, you know, I mean, a sense of how Robert Louis Stevenson is remembered or thought of. And um, because, of course, you know, there's been there have been, of course, accounts of Stevenson's life in some uh, historical accounts. But what doesn't come out often is that from a Samoan perspective, Stevenson was a Christian gentleman. He was not just a foreign visitor, he was a Christian gentleman. And the reason they say that is partly because of Sa- Samoa's own overwhelmingly Christian population. So, you know, the perspective perhaps uh, shapes that view. But also uh, because the, of the way Stevenson chose to live in Samoa. Um, he he lived in a, it was a, it was a sort of a, a lay missionary household. I mean, you know, many of the people, many of the Samoans and also other Pacific Islanders, by the way, Samoa itself attracted people from other Pacific Islands besides Samoans. The people who worked for Stevenson uh, and his domestic retinue, he, he built a huge estate, you know, um, they, uh, they were almost all Christians, and they were Christians of different denominations, they were Catholics, there were Protestants there. And, um, and, and so and then Stevenson also took care of some of the younger uh, men, the younger boys who um, uh, worked for him, who were uh, connected to the missions in Samoa. There was a Presbyterian mission that he was close to, the London Missionary Society's mission in, up here. Um, so Stevenson's perspective and Stevenson's life in Samoa was that of a Christian gentleman, he had a, I think he was aware of his responsibility, uh, at least morally, and also at least in an external sense, uh, uh, religiously, you know, he, in terms of attending church, either with his mother, who was a very devout lady herself, um, or, or just on his own sometimes, and also, uh, as I say, conducting regular prayer, and also con- committing himself to the norms that the missionaries had established in Samoa. So, for example, the, the you know fair, various Sabbath injunctions against doing work or play, even certain types of play on Sundays, Stevenson got in trouble because he was kind of, uh, he liked to, uh, you know, uh, sometimes play around. You know, what, what, There's one occasion where he's kind of, Got got in trouble with uh, the missionaries because he broke the Sabbath injunction about playing uh, certain games uh, in Samoa, and he then apologized. He apologized to the wife of the missionary actually, because uh, and um, it it was very fascinating to see that kind of uh, that turnaround in the author, because of course uh, in Edinburgh when he was growing up he consciously rebelled against that, you know, and and much has been written about that. Whereas in Samoa, it's almost like he's being incorporated into a, a, a new Christian community, and he's um, <laughs> in that case maybe not welcoming it, but it's certainly voluntary. It's, you know, he's a grown man, he's a head of a household, and uh, and he seems to uh, well, he certainly did uh, find a sort of a a, a, a value and identity in that commitment. You know, so I, I reference, for example, the, the famous. Um, lines from the, uh, what is the book of Ruth, right, Uh, which are written on Stevenson's tombstone, you know, my people should be, your your people should be my people, your God should be my God. I mean, this is a a very powerful statement of how he felt about Samoa and Samoans at the end of his life, you know. Um, So yeah, so Stevenson kind of really became drawn into that uh, intercultural, I I describe it in the book as a kind of a Samoan experiment with Christianity. I say that because it's not simply a case of uh, the missionaries, uh, you know, imposing uh, kind of their, their norms in, in Samoa. Uh, Samoans also push back in many ways, and also, as we'll uh, maybe preempting myself, but they also kind of um, uh, try to define what that Christianity should look like for themselves in Samoa. And Stevenson's fascinated by this, he's impressed by Samoan religiosity and sincerity, and, and he, I think, uh, rediscovers himself in a certain sense uh, in that environment. Um, and then that. I argue um, starts to shape, in my opinion, the fiction that he writes naturally as an author, but but not just the fiction of the Pacific, but also the European setting uh, set set fiction that he writes in the Pacific. And I discuss various works of his, and and it's just a fascinating thing that he returns to the European past, uh, the the era of the you know, if you like, the aftermath of the or around the Reformation and its aftermath. And I, I make the conjecture that he was perhaps inspired uh, by the Pacific world, this kind of Christianity as this new phenomenon in the Pacific you know souls being saved or fought over uh, interdenominational conflict even in Samoa there were kind of you know Catholic and Protestant rivalries you know even in the Samoan kind of civil war if you like um, there were different kind of denominational groups. I think that must have fired his imagination and and, uh, and lit. Uh, that kind of inspiration to go back and, uh, and, um, and re-narrate certain episodes in European history. Of course, that kind of material is always close to Stevenson. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to make the claim that Stevenson became interested somehow in European uh, history and religious history just because of Samoa. But I think Stevenson is drawn back, especially to the communal aspect of the European religious past and also the, I mean, again, a familiar theme with Stevenson, but maybe not in the corporate sense, the supernatural uh, it, the corpora or the communal supernatural, which again is something he's very, I think, quite impressed by in Samoa. Uh, as I say, this, this kind of uh, this veteran of the buff itself, you know, uh, in Samoa, he sees uh, the poorer self, if you like, if I can put it very bluntly, you know, everywhere, you know. Um, and he wonders whether he himself at one point is being sucked in, as he says, uh, at some point. These are, Samo- these are not Samoan, um, you know, uh, non-Christians. These are, these are Samoan Christians. Uh, and so Christianity is doing odd things uh, for Stevenson uh, from what his understanding was in Edinburgh. Um, so, yeah, so he's drawn to maybe reflect on the European past. And, of course, reflecting on the European past means reflecting on his own identity I think uh, in in Samoa. So he's, he's also writing other kind of more autobiographically focused work, uh, family history, and so on. But I think in these kind of finished and unfinished European novels, he's maybe um, reflecting on his new identity as a as a kind of a citizen of a collective uh, religious or moral religious community.
1: Right, absolutely. Um, and is is there, uh, is there is there maybe one dominant denomination in the Samoa the Samoan religious community that he's a part of I don't know if it would be the 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 affiliation of the London Missionary Society or uh if, if it was much more diffuse than that I'm but is is there one that kind of stood out that he would um that he kind of found that community in
2: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he it was it was the I mean, it was broadly Presbyterian and maybe a little bit more on the evangelical side. Presbyterian, uh, the London Missionary Society uh, in Apia. Um, so yeah, but there, but and and you know, interestingly, that has you know through various transformations, but that has kind of become the the main the major denomination in Samoa, not the only large one, but the, but the 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 one that more Samoans follow than any other denomination. The other Christian groups there, there, are, there is a Methodist uh, group, there's a Roman Catholic and also more recently a Mormon group. But, but Stevenson was most closely affiliated with the Presbyterians with a, particularly a missionary named uh, Clark, who he was close to an English missionary, who was a kind of an inspiration. And maybe Clark said this anyway, that he was uh, the inspiration for one of Stevenson's heroes in uh, this heroic missionary character in, in Stevenson's brilliant uh, novella, The Beach of Faliza. Um but also he was, I mean, it's interesting you asked the question because he was also ra- reasonably familiar with the Roman Catholics in Samoa as well. And he had, for example, the bishop of the area, the, I think it kind of uh, uh, to his home and various priests every so often. And he knew the, um, the religious, um, uh, the Catholic uh, religious center that was not too far on the other side of the mountain from where he lived. Um, so yeah, so again, religious literacy. You know, he's kind of he comes from a Presbyterian background, but he's also got this kind of engagement, this curiosity, the fascination with, with the other, which is Roman Catholicism, of course. You know,
1: right. So um, I did want to uh, touch on your your discussion of inculturation, um, and, and maybe this kind of leads us into that. Um, uh, this was definitely um a, I, I feel like it, it introduces a lot of complexity in thinking about the the people Stevenson was interacting with and um kind of how they how they figure themselves and, and what he saw there. So maybe we could um kind of talk about uh, why Stevenson was well prepared to uh you know kind of see that enculturation um and and what that is that he saw.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, The, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I introduced various concepts in the book, but I think it is the kind of the, the key concept, really, that's one that kind of uh, was uh, um, that that I kind of built the book around, if you like, really just to, to try to get to grips with. And the term is used, you know, in uh, contemporary kind of, you know, theologians use it and, and people study world Christianity use it. And, you know, if I put it in very general terms, it's really concerned with, uh, the relationship between Christianity and culture, right? which is an old—you can describe as an old problem or an old question, or an old concern—but um, uh, it's a it's a relationship between religion and culture, but that has a very specific trajectory in colonial contexts, including the island Pacific, um, you know, uh, because it's often associated with the uh, the appropriation, the yeah, uh, you know, of Christianity by indigenous. Peoples, native peoples, if you like, so you know, Indian inculturation, Samoan inculturation, Korean inculturation, rather than if you like the missionary activity that comes from essentially from the West, from Western sources. That's how it's often framed, and I think that's you know, obviously perfectly legitimate. What I want to do with the term, though, is argue that Stevenson's fiction portrays a world in which. To become a Christian convert does not mean you become subjugated colonially. Um, Rather, if anything, in some of his fiction, at least, you see empowerment through Christianity. You see a kind of a, you know, a kind of a talking back, a kind of a tools uh, for expression and for solidarity through Christianity. You know, Christianity brings peoples from different corners of the island Pacific together in some of his fiction, who otherwise would have maybe not so much in common, maybe linguistically so on. Of course, often Christianity comes with a certain forms of literacy, biblical literacy. And so, you know, if people who can read the Bible, even in different languages, can at least communicate about ideas, uh, and, and often through the same language anyway, through English or French or one of the other Pacific lingua franco. Um Christian enculturation uh, also for me uh, in Stevenson's work touches on the Stevenson's observation about how Christianity is starting to leave an enduring material presence in the Pacific. You know, um, and anthropologists have picked up on this themselves in their work, you know, uh, looking at the history of things like religious medallions and objects and artifacts in the Pacific. Stevenson often refers to this in his fiction almost in passing. He's obviously seen this himself when he was traveling across the Pacific, whether it's in the French colonies or the British or other places like Hawaii. Um, so, so enculturation really is a kind of an umbrella concept for me uh, through which I kind of uh, get to uh, analyze what's going on in Stevenson's Pacific fiction uh, and try to show how uh, his engagement with Pacific cultures, as you, as you describe, is complex. Uh, it's not one-sided. It's neither a simple uh, indigenization you know, in the sense of, well, OK, the priests used to be French and now they're all Marquesan, or they used to be English pastors and now they're all Samoan. No, there is that going on, but something more than that is going on. Um, uh, uh, and um, and uh, and it's also not and simply an acculturation either. It's not simply, well, it's, uh, you know, Pacific Islanders basically adopting the manners, the dress and the garb. Uh, the 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 mindset of of Westerners, you know, from some some sort of cultural colonialism. Um, so Stevenson is observing these things, I think, at a very important and interesting moment in Pacific history where uh, in the late nineteenth century, uh, you know in a place like Samoa, where there's an emergence also of a um, a kind of an independent independence minded consciousness. So religion or Christianity in a place like Samoa also has lots to say. About the emergence of a Samoan identity, a Samoan sense of uh, ownership of what they have, uh, resistance. Um, so all these things come in, I think, in his fiction. And, and you know, given that Stevenson died in 1894, um, you know, there's, there's a kind of a prophetic streak, a prophetic strain to some of what he writes here. I think you know, he's kind of clearly seeing things happen that will then develop uh, in in the late later 19th and early to mid 20th century. And very fascinating. And from from the people from the vantage point of, of, of the people living in Stevenson's time, uh, unimaginable ways. Um, so I just want to I want to draw readers' attention to that element and really draw uh, audiences in uh, and readers in, in areas such as world Christianity to say, look, here's a here's an author who's worth studying for these reasons. I think you know, and uh, not just as a, a very interesting writer on culture, but somebody who's got something to say about the interaction of global Christianity and colonialism.
1: Right. Yes. And I, um, I know that you, is there maybe, um, uh, a way for us to briefly talk about the, the kind of political, um, you know, uh, maybe it's the political observation that, that Stevenson makes or, or the, um, just the kind of the, how, how his, writing whether that's the nonfiction or the fiction is is kind of representing that in in that area
2: yeah absolutely i mean stevenson is uh is more i mean uh, stevenson scholars have noted that stevenson is much becomes much more politicized in the pacific relatively speaking than than he was at any other stage of his life you know um not that he was not interested in politics early in his life but he's more engaged and and he feels, I think, as I said about Stevenson Samoa, he feels a sense of ownership of the problems that Samoans are un- undergoing, or at least a sense of uh, engagement and participation. Um, he thinks that Samoan problems can only ultimately be solved by Samoans. He thinks that the Western imperial powers it's, it's Britain, Germany, and the United States, primarily in Stevenson's time, who are vying for control in, in Samoa, as well as in various other Pacific regions, along with the French. And um, But Stevenson thinks that uh, Samoans need to own, to work on, to occupy, uh, to to uh, to use productively their land, and of course that also has Scottish roots, of course, in ideas of Scottish land ownership and political economy and so on. Um, but yes, yeah, so Stevenson's engaged with the um, uh, the the kind of the what would be what, come, what would become the incipient colonial resistance movement in Samoa, but from a very from its very early stages and. As I say, what's interesting and fascinating is that he engage he tries to engage Samoans through the lens of Christianity, or what's one of the primary means, because he knows that Samoans are clearly a, um, uh, you know, they're in how can I put it? They're in the grip of Christianity. You know, they are they're a, you know they they become a Christian or they're becoming a Christian peoples. So it's almost partly practical, I think, as much as anything. He, he engages uh, uh, Samoan leadership. The small leaders in uh, with his religious literacy uh, to try to nudge them towards what he sees as kind of politically maybe more uh, prudent positions. And the same way, by the way, he, he 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 tries to prevent missionaries, Western missionaries, from becoming too politically engaged in these things as well. He felt that that was not the place for them.
1: No, that's that's an interesting uh, uh, position for, for Stevenson to to take, and um, uh, definitely adds adds some complexity there so in the final section of the book uh you talk about stevenson's ecclesiology and and as you said earlier um you know obviously church did not even though maybe the personal commitment to um uh belief and those kinds of things he distanced himself from the the church the life in church um in the building itself, but then also in that religious community that, that continued in some interesting ways. Um, but, uh, if you could just kind of tell us about Stevenson's ecclesiology, uh, um, as you found it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, just, first of all, I think it's interesting just to reflect, uh, in the, you know, in the, in the situation of the West, uh, in Stevenson's time when there was, the beginnings, I suppose, of what we might call today disaffiliation. That is to say, you know, to say something like, well, I I believe God exists, or I believe in much of the moral teachings of the Bible, or I, I, I accept many of the ideas and the beliefs of Christianity, but I don't go to church, I don't practice the faith, I don't receive the sacraments, whatever combination, depending on your particular Christian background. And I think Stevenson is Stevenson, like comes to intellectual maturity uh, while that is going on in Britain and and other parts of the of the kind of North Atlantic world, if you like, called the West. Um, And so the church, what I mean by the church is obviously, as you say, not just the building, but also uh, a certain conception of religious belief uh, that, again, like with the concept of religious literacy, uh, tries to encompass. Uh, various aspects of social and cultural life, as well as kind of, if you like, formal doctrinal and practical elements that are associated with Christianity. Um, and, and one of the reasons I do this in the fifth chapter also is to try to circle back and connect what I've been saying about Stevenson in the Pacific with his early life in, in Scotland. Uh, and then also subsequently in the US, I also discuss a little bit about his observations about the emergence of a, of a new kind of church or new understandings of the church in in, in California. Um, But, you know, Stevenson has this kind of knowledge and this sensitivity towards religion and towards religious questions, theological questions, ideas about how churches should be organized, uh, what is the best way for churches uh, to receive funding, which is a big, important issue for pastoral funding in a place like Scotland. Uh, It was actually a perennial debate, really, for several centuries in Scotland, church patronage. And Stevenson... Has his own opinions about that, um, uh, but he grows up, uh, as I say, in the shadow of the of the so-called kind of disruption of 1843. So when he's a young man in the 1860s, 1870s, he's really quite engaged with internal debates in in the Church of Scotland, which his parents are, you know, members of, um, uh, and uh, and he writes some work, uh, writes some writes a pamphlet, writes a kind of open letter. Uh, to members of the Church of Scotland, expressing his views about unity and about the need to make an example for the wider world, the wider Scottish world, uh, uh, kind of give a good moral example through the, through the way the Church of Scotland behaves towards other denominations in Scotland, in the free church. Um, and then I kind of connect that interest in ecclesiology and those writings about church, about Stevenson's conception of church, um, w- with his subsequent writing about churches all the way through to his days in Samoa, uh, as it tries to build a church for itself, a native church, an indigenous church, a church separate from the church built by the missionaries, or, or at least that has a uh, an autonomy that's distinct from what the London Missionary Society has set up in Samoa. Um, and so I, I focus on the theme of ecclesiology to try to look at the impact of these, as I describe it, changing contextual influences on Stevenson's mind. How does context shape his thinking about ecclesiology from going from you know edinburgh in the aftermath of the disruption to to this kind of interesting kind of spanish founded church in in california uh with this kind of uh indigenous american uh members the, in this roman catholic church singing in latin you know which is very moved by it, those kind of things and then uh, and then coming to some more and engaging in questions about colonialism uh, and independence through um you know, kind of this kind of extremely uh, communal Christian uh, society that's emerging in Samoa. Um, I also argue that the Stevenson, again, is in some senses prophetic in that uh, the, the missionary direction of ecclesiology, of church thinking in the 20th century, especially in Scottish Presbyterian thought, I, I, I delineate a little bit. Um, you can trace some of that again in the way Stevenson writes about the church in Samoa. And I don't think it's specifically because Stevenson had, you know, a a kind of, um, how can I say, a kind of gift for kind of, you know, theology or ecclesiology in himself. But because of the situation he was faced with in Samoa, he he engaged with it as uh, being um, related to the London Missionary Society, but not incorporated within it. So he had a certain independence from it or certain autonomy from it. And of course, he was, again, related, although not entirely, of course, in the Samoan Christian world. And so he could maybe begin to see some of the ways in which uh, uh, ecclesiology had to move, thinking about the church had to move in order to remain relevant. And it's interesting, and I just kind of just hit, uh, you know suggest a few ways in which you can s- see parallels between what Stevenson, the conclusion Stevenson arrives at in terms of Samoan and I suppose broader Pacific ecclesiology in the late 19th century, and then what happens in the aftermath of the colonial era, Uh, in the west more broadly with ecclesiology after the sort of 1960s and so on
1: right thank you so much for that uh discussion of stevenson's ecclesiology um michael we've been taking up a lot of your time and uh so we want to let you go soon but before we go i did want to ask um is there anything that you're you're working on right now or what's next
2: Thank you. Yeah, um, I, Two things I'm working, two projects really. One is um, connected to Stevenson, uh, uh, maybe a biographical account of a broader biographical account of Stevenson's spiritual life and religious thought. So maybe addressing one of the unspoken, uh, unanswered questions maybe in this book, which is, uh, you know, so, so what was the content of his belief? How, to what extent was he a believer? Getting into that, uh, maybe uh, uh, getting into that kind of set of questions. Um so I'm I'm, think, I'm working on that, and the other project um, is really an intellectual history of 19th century British theology and its relationship with ideas of empire. So it's going touching on my kind of work on the British Empire, but relating it to theology, uh, particularly focusing on the work of John Henry Newman.
1: Oh, that that sounds fascinating. Both of those projects, uh, I know, I definitely. Uh was was interested because your, your book did bring up that uh it, it kind of leaves leave space to explore that that question of stevenson's spirituality and his experience but uh both of those look, look sound fascinating so thank you so much dr michael ratna uh uh Michael's been talking to us about his book, Robert Louis Stevenson and the Pacific, The Transformation of Global Christianity, published with Edinburgh University Press in 2023. Uh, Thank you again. This has been fantastic, Michael, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on.
2: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.